Good morning. I uh, thank you to the musicians, Gerald and Mackenzie, and to each musician that's helped throughout the year. I want to thank you. Um, each week, you just help us get our hearts focused on the passage. I also, because this is our last week together before we break for the summer, I also want to thank our mentors. Each week you come so faithfully, you oversee all of the little details that need to be taken care of behind the scenes, you provide for food, we oversee the food. Um, thank you. We could not operate without each one of you. As I said, this morning is our final week before we break for the summer. It is our last week studying the book of Ephesians together, and we are going to go out with a bang. We are going to be studying spiritual warfare. If you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, I should give you some warning. There are volumes, literally volumes, written on this passage. All right, we are short on time, so we will not be discussing all of that. We'll try to hit instead on some of the few things, or some of the main things from this passage. If you would open your Bibles to Ephesians 6, chapter 10. I'm going to read the first uh, 10 through 14. As I read, I want you to watch for the repetition. Watch for the repetition because it's key. <clears throat> Here we go. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Okay, we're going to stop there for a minute. It's fitting that our passage starts with the word finally. Finally. And that word means for the rest. It means for the rest because it's showing that this section is built on what precedes it. So let's think about that. We haven't been together in a couple weeks, so that might take a, we might have to think a little harder on that. But the first three chapters of Ephesians have been all about all that Christ has done for us. What Christ has given us, what we have in Christ, who we are in Christ. That's the first three chapters. And then the last three chapters are all about how we're to live in light of that. What do we do now? Particularly in our relationships with one another and with each other in the body. And then you come to the end of this passage and it's as if Paul says, Oh, and one more thing. All that you're doing, you'll be doing in very hostile territory. You're going to be doing all of this surrounded with an enemy that hates you, that hates God, that hates Jesus Christ, with whom you have just now joined yourself together with. Okay, imagine if I were to ask you, uh, would you mind uh, taking this home with you, uh, dropping this off for me on your way home from Abide this morning? Oh, and by the way, the neighborhood is uh, very hostile, and they're probably going to be shooting at you. Okay, that's kind of the, that's the taste here. That's the, um, 
That's the feel of this. All of the terminology that Paul is using here speaks of battle. It speaks of warfare. I want you to notice six times in two verses, we read the word against. You have an adversary. We have an adversary. The church has an adversary. Remember, Ephesians is being written to the church, to the church body. So number one on our paper today. We are soldiers in a war zone. Paul is explaining what our environment is going to be like as we live out our Christianity. Okay? And he likens it to a battlefield. Unfortunately, today, we Americans tend to think of it as a trip to the spa. Okay? But that is nothing, nothing like the way the scripture <clears throat> is explaining it. Now, who do we battle against? Who is our enemy? Let's talk about that. Because if we're to fight correctly, we need to know these things. <clears throat> now, you actually had a question like that as a part of your homework, asking you about your enemy. And we've talked about this before. It's a very good time to review it. I have a little box on the side of your paper where we're going to talk about the three enemies, because you actually have three. All right, now the first is your own flesh. It is what remains of your fallen nature that has not been totally redeemed as of yet. Okay, that's our first enemy. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So that's describing an internal battle. All right, so the flesh, that is your enemy within. Okay, that's your enemy on the inside of you. Now, if you're reading in the scripture and it's talking about this enemy, you're going to read things like put it to death, beat it, kill it. Okay, that's what we're to do with this enemy, enemy number one. All right, enemy number two that we've talked about is the world. All right, that's the world system, and that's the enemy around you. Okay, it's the enemy, it's around you, you see it, and do you know what it's doing? It's trying to influence and appeal to enemy number one, that flesh, that sinful flesh that's inside of you. Now, this enemy, you're told to hate, you're told to run from it, <clears throat> you're told to resist it. All right, and then you come to the third enemy, and that is the devil. That's the enemy against us. Some will even say it is the enemy above us because we just read <clears throat> he's in the heavenly places. Now, the devil is overseeing the world system, <clears throat> and the world system is trying to appeal to your sinful nature. Okay? So you got three enemies. <clears throat> if you want to think of a really easy way to remember this, inside, outside, upside, downside. Okay? That explains it. You've got an enemy all over. Okay? Now, important part of being prepared for battle is to know your enemy. And the Bible's filled with teaching on this. Now, we're not going to hit it all. We're going to just concentrate on what this particular passage, passage tells us about the enemy. So there'll be a lot of things that we don't talk about. But look at verse 11. It says, Put on the armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. <clears throat> Number two on your paper. The enemy is sophisticated 
and well-organized. He schemes against us. That word schemes is the Greek word methodie. You can see the word method in it. It's the word from which we get methodical, okay? And it speaks of a deliberate planning, a systematic approach. It's speaking of strategies. It's speaking of plotting. He's very calculated and cunning, like a very skillful hunter. Okay, on top of that, he is also very experienced. He's been doing this for thousands of years, okay? All right, missionaries will often tell stories of bizarre things that happen on the mission field as a result of demonic activity. Most of the time, the enemy is going to be very subtle and very camouflaged. Okay, he primarily wants you to sin because when you sin, you turn your back on God and you cut off your uh, power supply. So he wants you to sin, and then he wants to accuse you about it after you sin. So we've, it's kind of a one-two punch. So he's looking, when he schemes, he's primarily doing that in two ways. It's not the only ways, but he's looking to tempt, and he's looking to accuse. Now, verse 12 says that our struggle, all right, and that's a word that is describing hand-to-hand, life-or-death combat. And he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against powers, and against world forces. Now, I want you to notice the words rulers, powers, world forces. Those are power words. Okay? So, number three, the enemy is powerful. The enemy is powerful. Now, is he as powerful as God? No. No, he is not God's evil twin. He was created by God. He is completely subject to God, okay? But he is a formidable enemy. So we want to keep that in mind. Number four, the enemy rules the world forces. And we just talked about that. There is only one devil, but he oversees a kingdom of fallen angels and demons. So while the devil can only be in one place at one time, he does have demons that do his bidding. Can the demons read your mind? No. No, they are not omniscient. They cannot read your mind. The only thing they can do is they can observe mankind over time, and they can become very good guessers. But they cannot read your mind. Okay, number five. The enemy is evil. You see this all through this passage. Paul uses words like wickedness, dark evil, okay? The enemy wants to spread evil. They are in the business of immorality and rebellion. There is nothing good, nothing beneficial, nothing harmless about this enemy. He desires to destroy the church, the work of the church, and to stop the spread of the gospel. Those are, those are his um, main desires. Again, he is subject to God. If he were free to do what he wants, we would all be dead or covered with boils, or something like we see from the book of Job. Okay, last one, and this is number six. The enemy is spiritual, okay? Now, this does not mean that there is no physical expression of evil. Okay, what it means, Paul, Paul of all people would know that. Paul is explaining that the real enemy of the church 
isn't the person standing in front of you. It is the evil kingdom, the unseen spiritual enemy that is strategizing behind that person. You could handle this guy. Okay? The guy in front, he is a son of disobedience. Now, he has his own sin problems, but he is a captive of the true enemy. The church's true battle is with the unseen enemy behind. Okay, now does that mean that if you are having an argument with your husband or a store clerk or a cranky child that you need to cast out the demons that are in them <laughs> or pray that a, the spirit of crankiness would be removed? Okay, should you do that? I would not advise that. Okay? And, and here's why. Not everything is de demon-related. Remember, we all have that first enemy of the fallen flesh. Um, right now, it's very popular for, um, to have deliverance ministries. You see a lot of that online. Okay. So if we're not to go around casting out demons, and if our true enemy is, is the unseen in the spirit world, then what are we to do about that? How do we battle something like that? How do we engage in spiritual warfare? Well, let's talk about that. Let's go back to verse 10 and look at what we're commanded to do. As I read through this, watch the commands, watch the instructions. <clears throat> verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Look at 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm, stand firm. Therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Okay. First thing we read is be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Usually, if somebody tells you to be strong, it's because, you know, it's before something difficult is going to happen. So number seven, we need divine strength and divine armor. Our enemy is formidable. Our enemy is invisible. Our enemy is sophisticated and very experienced. We, we cannot, in and of ourselves, we are completely inadequate. And I should mention here that that is definitely one of the schemes of the enemy is to get you to battle him on your own, in your own strengths, within your, with your own ways. Okay, but we are told that we are to be strong in the Lord. We need the Lord in this. Now, next he tells us to put on the full armor of God. Now, that's an interesting way for him to put that. Because on one hand, he's just explained to us that we are completely, completely dependent on God for strength and for ability, and yet he turns to us and says, you have a responsibility. There is something you're to do. Okay. He says, put on the full armor of God. You see, as much as I'd like, I can't dress you in the armor. I can't dress my kids. I know I'm in battle with you. I don't want to see you knocked around, but I can't dress you. We can help each other. We can encourage each other. We can teach each other. But when it all comes down to it, we have to dress ourselves. 
Okay, that's next. Number eight, we must dress ourselves in God's armor. Okay, not our own strength, not our own armor. Let's be very clear about that. But we must dress ourselves. All right, the third command we see, and it's mentioned three times, is we are told to stand firm. Now, if two people are duking it out in a life or death struggle, the last one standing is the winner. Could we not agree? Okay, and Paul is saying, stand firm. Stand firm. I want to tell you a story. It's about General John Buford. He was a Civil War hero, and he was the commander of the cavalry for the Union Army. And you don't hear a lot about him, but some say that the Battle of Gettysburg might have ended very differently if it was not for General John Buford. Apparently, he was one of the first people on the scene at Gettysburg. And he had a, he had a reputation for being a very quick thinker and for, and for being very good at the strategies of where he placed his men. He was very good at picking out battleground, and he knew the importance of picking the high ground. You see, from the high ground, you've got a better perspective of your enemy, and, and your opponent is working at a disadvantage because he's got to do everything uphill, and if you're a soldier, you know that it's much easier to maintain the land on the high ground. So he arrives on the scene, and he is, he's thinking, he's got a pretty good idea of what the South is coming and about to do. So he quickly gets to work picking out and assessing the best spot, the best land. And he takes his few cavalrymen and he puts them around this high ground. And there wasn't very many of them, but they were given the task of holding it until the rest of the army could come and get in place. And they did it at great sacrifice to themselves. It is speculated that if General Lee had arrived first and he had acquired that special plot and special high ground, that the Battle of Gettysburg may have ended very differently which in turn might have meant that the war itself would have ended very differently. You see, Paul has just spent the first three chapters telling us about our position, that we are in Christ, that we have been raised together with him and seated with him in the heavenlies far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We have the high ground. Number nine, we have been given the high ground, so stand firm. Stand firm. Now, Paul is going to elaborate on that. He's going to, he's going to expound a little bit. And um, let's see what he talks about. I'm going to start reading again in verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith which you will be able to ex uh, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. <clears throat> okay, we're going to talk about the armor we're going to move through this rather quickly. You've probably heard sermons and talked about it before. I found that there were a lot of variations in the way um, people described it in the different pieces. But one thing that we can all agree, 
is when we are talking about putting on the armor of God, we are talking about putting on Christ, which was talked about. It's, this was in your homework as well. It's talking about putting on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. So while we don't want to get too hung up on all the metaphors and all the pieces, we don't want to miss the big picture. That our primary defense, our only defense in spiritual warfare is going to be a godly life and all the aspects of a godly life. Okay? <clears throat> okay, he starts by telling us, gird your loins with truth. So the first piece of your equipment is, number one, <clears throat> put on the belt of truth. Now, anytime you read of girding your loins in the Bible, it's always going to be speaking of preparation and being ready. You know, men, they wore tunics. And so if they were to be able to move and do anything without tripping, they would have to bring that tunic up through their legs and stick it down into their belt. And apparently the belt was an undergarment for a soldier that all the other pieces of equipment attached to. And Paul is saying that truth is like the belt. Truth wraps everything together. Truth is what prepares. Now, I want you to think about it. Our enemy is called the devil. He is called the father of lies. His primary tool against us is that he lies to us. He lies. He lies. He um, counterfeits. He confuses. He wants you to be confused. He wants your kids to be confused. So it is not surprising that Paul says, <clears throat> wrap yourself in truth. Put on truth. Wrap yourself in truth. Let it get deep down inside of you, into your innermost being. <clears throat> Let me ask you, what are you doing to bring truth into your life? Because remember we said, there's some, this is something you have to do for yourself. What are you doing to keep untruths out of your life? Because you need both. Okay, next we have the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was a solid piece of equipment that covered all those uh, vital internal organs. You can live without a finger. You cannot live without a liver. So they would wear a breastplate. Paul is saying, your, find your protection in righteousness, in holiness. Now, there is some uh, debate over whether he is talking about positional righteousness or practical righteousness. Some say, why can't it be both? Well, um, when we practice the righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ, it is a form of resistance. It is a form of protection. You are not going to be effective in battle if you are not living righteously. Number three, put on the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. Peace. Soldiers had to do a lot of marching. And it's said that the Roman army was very successful. They say they had very good shoes. They apparently had some types of nails or little spikes that would come out of the bottom, probably much like cleats and so forth today. And so that they were able to march long distances and then not slip whenever they were doing battle. 
Okay, Paul is wanting us to be prepared for battle with the gospel of peace. Now, some say this is referring to the peace of mind that you have because you know that you have peace with God. That's one thought. Others say that this has to do with sharing the gospel, that a victorious Christian is going to be sharing the gospel of Christ. Now, think about it, what we've just said. We've said the people that we encounter, they're captives, they're prisoners, that the enemy wants to keep in their kingdom. And so how do we, how do we engage in spiritual battle? You share the gospel with that captive and with that prisoner. Do you know the gospel? Do you understand it? Could you explain it to somebody in understandable terms? How about can you explain it to a child? Many of you are around a lot of children. That's a mission field. The gospel of peace is a part of our armor. Number four, take up the shield of faith. Supposedly, there were two kinds of shields. The one that this one is talking about is the one that looks like a big door. And they used to be metal, or sometimes they were wood, and then covered with leather, which they would dip in water, so that when the enemy um, threw firing arrows, they could be protected from that. Neat thing about this shield is it was intended to connect to the shield beside it with the other soldier. And so that you could come together and stand and make a wall and be protected. Paul is telling us that our living faith is a shield. When we believe God, when we believe his word, it is a shield for us. Okay, next, number five, take the helmet of salvation. Okay, our identity, as we have talked about in Ephesians, is all wrapped up in your salvation. Okay, your salvation explains who you are. Do you understand your salvation and all that God has accomplished for you when Christ died for your sin? Do you understand your new identity? Because Paul is telling us we need to know it. We need to understand it because it is going to be a way in which we resist the enemy. The first week we were here, we talked about your new identity in Christ, and I gave you seven things, and I told you to memorize them. Could you recite them? Because they're a helmet for you. There's much said today about the problems that women face with their identity. An identity crisis is one of the ways that the enemy has schemed this generation. Women are very confused about their identity. Paul says, get your helmet on. Number six, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All right, there's a lot made about this weapon, and the fact it's the only offensive weapon. It's actually both. It's defensive and offensive. And this sword is talking about a short sword, and it used to be um, that the Roman soldiers all carried. It was double-edged. And it was the principal weapon in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And it said that if a soldier was very skilled in using this, um, that he was very difficult to approach, nearly impossible to approach, because he could wield it very fast, and he was very precise. And so much that supposedly he could go through armor with that thing. Well, 
When Paul tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit, he tells us it's the Word of God. And he uses a different term here for word. Often when you see that word, uh, word in the Greek, it's logos, which is speaking of a general statement. Okay, And uh, this one, he uses the word rima in this case, which speaks of a specific or a particular statement. Okay, In other words, Paul is not talking about you having a general understanding of the Bible and the Word of God. That's good. Remember, we've already talked about our belt and how we're to be wrapped in truth. In this particular case, he is talking about a, he's talking about precision. He's talking about taking a word of God and using it with precision. A word, a verse that is exactly what you need for the exact moment of time or the exact battle moment. And a perfect example of this is look at Jesus all throughout the Gospels, particularly when he's in the wilderness being um, tempted by Satan. But you can also see it every time he talks to the religious leaders and anyone who is coming up against him. I shared with you a while back the story of the Jehovah Witness that came to my door. And she asked me... Um, she asked me, she started by asking me if I was interested in spiritual matters, and I said I was. And, and then I asked her, um, uh, is that typical? When, when you're out and around going door to door, I, I wanted to know what kind of response she gets to that question. And um, at that point, she, she almost seemed um, very transparent and uh, discouraged. And she, she said, um, no, I, 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 don't, I find that people aren't very interested in spiritual matters. And I said, um, you know, I, I find that too. I, I find that too. And um, we just kind of started talking back and forth. And I don't know at what point things went downhill, but, but they totally did. The, the, she, she was, the, the situation, the conversation turned. And she was loaded for bear. I mean, she had her Bible out, and she was spinning all through it, and she was citing things, and she was reciting things. And then she would take it and hold it up in my face and go, how do you explain that? And what about that? And what about that? And the whole, her whole goal, her whole purpose was to prove to me that Jesus was not God. That's what it boiled down to. Everything that she was firing at me was to prove that Jesus was not equal to God. He was just a man. Now, as she's talking, I, I was very tongue-tied. I could not speak. But in my mind, I was doing this. I, I couldn't talk, but I could put up my shield. And my shield was my faith that Jesus is the Son of God that he is equal with God. And I trusted him to be able to help me to speak to her, to explain that to her. And so it was while I was crouching behind my invisible door that um, a thought came to me. The, the Holy Spirit seemed to say in my heart, bring up marriage. Bring up the verse about how a wife is to submit to her husband. And so I did. And I shared the last time a little bit of how that conversation went down. But do you know from that moment on, from the moment I spoke that verse, the dynamics of that conversation changed dramatically. Now, you're going to want to remember this when you're raising children. 
Because you don't want to be a mom that's just spouting off Bible verses and religious cliches. You want to be able to take the word of the God and use it precisely with precision by the guidance of the Holy Spirit so that you're speaking a word that is exactly needed for the moment. Now, to be able to do that, you are going to have to be filled with the Spirit because we've seen that in chapter 5, and you're going to have to study the Word of God. Unfortunately, much of the modern church does not want to do that. We are biblically illiterate, and, though, and so we don't see much of this weapon. Let's move on. Verse 18, read this with me. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Okay, pray, or Paul is going to turn now to prayer. Everything that we've talked about is going to be wrapped up in prayer. I want to um, share with you a comment David Platt made in a recent sermon on prayer. And I'm paraphrasing. He said that prayer is the great hole in the canvas of Western Christianity today. He mentioned that we can spend hours in ministry serving, studying, writing, and blogging, but only minutes in prayer. Oh, I can identify with that personally. I've also watched how the church has changed over the years. We just don't pray. We don't pray much. Nowadays, um, we believers, we still like to meet. We like the social aspect. We, we gather. We, we can't seem to do it without food. <laughs> and more recently, alcohol. And with the exception of the quick blessing that is said over the food at the beginning, prayer is non-existent. And Paul says, Pray. Paul wants us to pray, and that means God wants us to pray. And he packs a lot in this little verse, and we want to go through them very quickly. Number one, we want to pray with all prayer. Pray with all prayer. You're going to pray together. You can pray alone. You can pray a very quick, spontaneous prayer. You can go into your closet and get down on your face. You can pray supplication. You can pray thanksgiving. You can pray praise. Paul says, all kinds of prayer. If all you are doing is taking a grocery list of things that you need to the Lord, you probably need to branch out. Okay, number two, we are to pray at all times. Pray at all times. That means that we are to be in communion with God so that we can be in a position to pray to him. Okay, that means, you know what that means? That means that we're going to have to be dealing with our sin. Because otherwise, we can't be in communion. Let me tell you a story. I, uh, when I lived in West Virginia, I was involved in a neighborhood Bible study. And my best and dearest friend, she was a neighbor, she hosted it, and then I would teach it. And we would have it on Thursday night. Thursday night was Bible study. Wednesday night was church. So we decided every Tuesday night, we would get together for just about an hour or so, and we would pray over the name of every girl that came. And then the verse, 
or the passages that we were going to be studying. There were believers that came. There were non-believers that came. And so uh, it was a standing rule that we would go pray on Tuesdays. Now, I had young children. I couldn't leave them alone at the time, and my husband worked very long hours, and he was late every Tuesday night. I could count on it. And one particular Tuesday night, he came home, and I, he was late, and I just laid into him. I just, I, just, I just let him have it with both barrels. Would it kill you to leave work a few minutes early so that I could be over there on time? Hey, how about a phone call? That would be nice. So I'm not standing by the front door pacing around wondering when you're going to get in. I was ugly. I let him have a piece of my mind. And then I said, I'm going to pray. <laughs> and I stormed and I walked out. And I got about halfway across the street, and I just, I was stuck in my tracks. And I could hear God say, oh, you can't pray like this. You can't pray like this. You cannot be out of fellowship with your husband and come over here and expect to be in fellowship and pray to me. You go back. You go back and you make things right with him. So I turned around, I went inside, and I said, I was totally, I was totally out of line. I should not talk to you like that. You work very hard to take care of us. I am so sorry that I yelled like I did. Can you forgive me? And he is a very gracious man. <laughs> and he forgives me and he forgave me. And so I turned around and I walked across the street and we had a very sweet prayer time. But you see, that's what this involves. When, when the Bible talks about praying at all times, it is talking about you being current and on your face about your sin. You see, one of the beauties of praying together is that it keeps me, it makes me deal with this stuff because I don't want to sit down next to a girlfriend and pray out loud when I haven't dealt with my sin. Do you know it brings accountability? And you know, there is so, so, so much accountability lacking in the church today because we don't pray together. We don't pray aloud with each other. Okay, moving on. Pray in the Spirit. Number three, pray in the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean praying in some foreign tongue that only God can understand. How do I know that? because we're reading this passage in its context. And we have been going all through the book of Ephesians, and we just read that we are to be filled with the Spirit. And that means that the Spirit, we're to be controlled by the Spirit. We're to be yielding to the Spirit. And when that happens, you're going to pray differently. Now, I shared with this before, one of the things that I like to do, if you're really wanting some help in this, I get my laptop and I'll cut and paste a passage and then I'll start to type and pray. For instance, I'm going to give you an idea if I were to use this passage. Say I would print out, fine, or I'd cut and paste, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And I might just start to type, oh dear Lord, I praise you that you're strong. I praise you that you have might and strength and you call me to live in that strength. Oh, could you help me live in that strength? Help me not to live in my own. I pray that you'll help my children to be strong. Help them not to try to face things on their own. I pray for my husband and, oh, and so-and-so. So-and-so is going through a really difficult time right now. 
Can you help them to be strong in your might and have your strength? And then I might go on and read, um, put on the whole armor of God. And I might say, oh, Lord, thank you for your armor. Thank you that you don't leave me unprotected and that you don't leave me exposed, but that you provide armor for me. Will you help me to put that on? I don't always know how to do that. Could you show me the pieces I'm missing? Oh, and my children. I can't put it on them, but you could, could you please help them put on their armor of God? Please show them where they need to make changes. So speak to them, convict them of their sins so that they know what they need. Then I might continue through it, and I might come to verse 13, where it says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And I typically go, wow, that is the second time I have typed this. This must be important. Help it to be important to me. Help me to understand how I am to do this. Now, what I find <clears throat> is when I use this format, a couple things happen. First of all, I praise more than usual. I thank more than usual. I praise God for things I wouldn't think to praise him for. Because on my own, I can't do it. I also confess more. Because my sin, it's, 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 it's addressing my sin as I go. And then I also find myself praying for other people about things I wouldn't think to pray for. You see, on my own, you know what I do? Help so-and-so have a nice stay. Help them be careful. Help them be safe. That's about the extent of it. But, oh, you open your Bible, and you got a totally different list. Okay, next. That is praying in the Spirit when we pray like that. Okay, number four, pray and be on the alert. All right, I want you to think of some war movie, some battle scene. The guy beside you is asleep or doesn't know what's going on. That's not a good situation, okay? We need to be alert. We need to be awake. <clears throat> Let me ask you, what if I were to ask you, could you tell me some of the basic problems, basic battles that the church is facing today? Do you know them? Do you know what the, the whole church is facing? Do you know what your local body is dealing with? We need to be alert. Paul says, you be alert, you stay awake. Okay, next, <clears throat> number five, pray with all perseverance. That means we give up, don't give up, whoops. We don't give up, we keep at it until God answers. And then lastly, <clears throat> we're to pray for the saints. How much time do you spend praying for others? How much time do you spend praying for their spiritual needs? Because that's what Paul's talking about here. I want to close uh, with a neat example of this. <clears throat> My daughter spends a lot of time um, working with the teenagers in our youth group. And she disciples them. And she found out about a young girl that is, was supposedly a new believer. She didn't know a whole lot about her. She found out uh, she was supposedly a new believer and that this young girl had bought tickets to the Miley Cyrus concert. And uh, Mackenzie was just, she was just tore up. She was just so distraught, just so concerned about what this young girl was going to see and be exposed to. She was equally distraught that the young girl wanted to go. It was just, it was kind of just a mess. Now, for those of you that are unfamiliar with Miley Cyrus, um, she has a bangers tour right now, which has been making headlines because it is so risque. It is filled with profanity, a lot of drug use illusions. And um, this is the way the secular press put it. 
Uh, the Bangers Tour is an R-rated venture into a world of pot, freaks, and orgies, sometimes all together. You can see pictures of this online. They are vile, vile. And so Mackenzie started to pray. She prayed that the girl would sell her tickets. She prayed that the girl would give her tickets away. She prayed that the girl would burn her tickets. She prayed <laughs> that, the girl would, that the girl's parents would get involved and tell her not to go. Well, none of those things happened. And on the day of the concert, however, on the day of the concert, 30 minutes before it was to take place, the concert was canceled. You may have seen that on TV. Supposedly, Miley, um, according to the news, Miley had the flu and the doctor said she needed to rest. The Monday night concert in Charlotte was canceled. The Tuesday night concert in Raleigh went on as planned. The news said the arena was filled with disappointed fans. They were mostly teenage girls and their mothers. Unfortunately, uh, this concert is scheduled for August. It originally was not to be rescheduled, but they just changed it. Now, do I think that that cancellation was coincidence? I don't. I believe that is what can happen when saints pray for the body. I believe that is what happens when a discouraged youth worker engages in spiritual battle with the weapons her God has provided. We must stand. We must pray. Let me close this in prayer. Father God, there is just so much rich in your word. It, it blows us away. It blows us away. I pray that you will help us to internalize this. Help it get down deep into our core and then just help us to remember it and use it and apply it with precision. Help us to use these weapons as we engage in spiritual battle. Oh, how I pray for each one of these women that they remember these truths and that you call them to their mind. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.